0: Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor of the Corporate Explorer series, our friends at Wazoko. Wazuku helps large organizations create effective, sustainable innovation ecosystems that accelerate efficiency gains and new value growth. It does this through intelligent enterprise software that connects and harnesses the power of employees, suppliers, startups, universities, and the unique Wazoko crowd of 700,000 plus global problem solvers. Wazoku calls this connected... Collective Intelligence. You can find Wazuku at wazuku.com. So far in the series, we recorded part one, an overview with Mike Tushman. Parts two and three were with Andy Bins, the main author of the book, where he covered strategic manifestos and hunting zones. And today we move to tra- chapter three, entitled Outside In, Overcoming Toxic Assumptions with Market Insight. It opens as follows. Corporate explorers use market insight to sensitize organizations to emerging opportunities and threats, so they can develop ideas for how to create new value for customers based on these insights. Unfortunately, both are easier said than done, with many traps that organizations often fall into. From Encyclopedia Britannica to Kodak to travel agency Thomas Cook, the corporate graveyard is littered with case studies of organizations that once dominated their markets but could not or did not adapt to a changing environment, even when the forces of change were clear to see. Often these organizations failed because they kept doing for too long what made them successful in the first place. In other words, they developed a success recipe which became deeply embedded in the organization and blinded them to signals of change. Our guest today calls this the inside out challenge This reinforces the established paradigms that the corporate explorer must confront. The second critical task, which he calls outside-in challenge, is to develop meaningful insights into customer needs. It is tempting to think that just asking customers should suffice, but we know that many remarkable innovations from motor car to web browser to iPhone would never have seen the light of day if customers had been asked what they wanted. Indeed. The task is to understand customers better than the customers themselves may be able to articulate. This is where we find uncontested market space where real opportunities for growth and building competitive advantages lie. The common denominator in both cases is that we are limited by the patterns of thinking and behaving that have taken root in our organizations. Often, the enemy is not so much the agile upstart competitor, but it is, in fact, within us, within our established routines and practices and within our ability to sense, imagine, and learn. I had to read that out, even though it's a bit long. Absolutely beautifully written, and it encapsulates so much of the themes that come across The Innovation Show. I hope you're intrigued. I certainly am, and we're joined by the co-author of that chapter, a management educator, consultant, and coach. He is the program director of the Henley Business School Executive Management Program, and he is the co-author of The Corporate Explorer, Narendra Laljani, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Aidan. Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you on the show. I thought we'd start before we get stuck into that chapter, unpacking those two pathologies, as you call them, and indeed suggest how a corporate explorer may deal with them. I wanted to start with you because you have a deep experience. You've a couple of books under your own belt in the past as well, and you have experienced the challenge of corporate exploration over many, many years. Maybe let's share your experience of both working with corporate explorers, coaching them, helping them, helping leaders, and indeed your own experience.
1: Yes, Aidan, I started my career back in, and for the first 15 years, I worked in a large corporation internationally for a British multinational. And I carry many scars from the businesses I tried to build in that environment. And I have to confess that there were notable failures as well as some modest successes. Uh, For my second career, which has been ongoing now for 25 plus years as an educator and as a facilitator, I've often been asked to support leadership teams as they shape and execute strategy. And therefore, I've had a ringside view of the C-suite in many international organizations and seen up close the challenges that corporate explorers face. And the book, therefore, is very well-timed and deals with this very important set of challenges.
0: So let's get stuck into the chapter because you have those scar tissues that many, many people have, and that actually makes being an educator much, much more valuable because you can speak through those scars, those lenses of experience, and one of the things I loved what you do as a great educator does is you, you use metaphor in this chapter. And in particular, use this great metaphor of DNA. I'm going to share a little excerpt here, and I'd love you to expand on it. You say, typically, assumptions and beliefs are the products of past success and over time become the way we do things around here. This in turn determines what we pay attention to and what we ignore, what we value and what we don't. This is what you call the genetic code of an organization. And this is the DNA metaphor, which is so helpful. And I'd love you to share.
1: Yes, I'm uh, very fond of that metaphor myself. And the phenomenon I'm describing here, as you've said, is deeply embedded ways of thinking and behaving that every organization has. Now, the older the organization, the more successful the organization, the more deeply entrenched these are. Now, this can be a good thing because this is an invisible lubricant that keeps organizations sticking over. Everybody knows how we do things around here. Otherwise, you'd need to consult a procedure manual every 60 seconds, and that's a lousy way to run a business. Now, these assumptions and beliefs are usually unconscious, and they are therefore unexamined, and consequently, they remain unchallenged. Now, the DNA metaphor works because it's a great piece of shorthand, and people can relate to the this- fact that just as all of us have a unique genetic fingerprint, perhaps over time, organizations also develop a genetic code. Many people can also quickly see the connection between the DNA and the theory of evolution. For example, the idea that if you don't evolve, at least as fast as the outside world, then you become a dinosaur. This is memorable and therefore the metaphor works
0: so let's bring it to life with an example you mentioned for example a once leading but now defunct british chemical company which clung to a deeply held belief that the better molecule will win now i'm going to ask your audience to think about that the better molecule will win in their industry because you can control f better molecule with and replace with any type of product because many many organizations think this particularly if they were successful at the very start particularly if they're more legacy or incumbent organization, they overlook, as you say, they pay attention to maybe a direct competitor instead of a competitor that might come from somewhere else. And as you say, the enemy lies within inside the organization. So maybe you'll share this story.
1: I'm going to leave the organization nameless for obvious reasons, but it enjoyed many decades of success, essentially on the basis of its prowess in uh, chemistry. And the idea that uh, customers would buy the better molecule was simply one of the many assumptions and beliefs that took root in the organization. But if you follow this through, this means that the organization considered that investment in research and development was always desirable. Uh, by contrast, investment in marketing wasn't. That the people they recruited needed to be primarily chemists. So if you were to fly on the wall in a new product meeting, All the talk and all the energy would be about the elegance of the molecule. And very rarely did anybody ask, what will this do for our customers? And I call this the more bubbles in the shampoo test. Will this make more bubbles in our customers' shampoo? Now, this mindset worked for, as I said, for many decades. But there came a time when customers started speaking a different language. Uh, They were now talking about the effects they needed and the solutions they needed, to problems they had. And the company found it very difficult to change. And in large part, what it did was too little and too late. Uh, And this was all too difficult to transition for the organization. This was one of the factors that
0: contributed to the organization losing its way. You mentioned in this chapter, and I mentioned in the introduction there mental models and i'd love you to describe what you mean by that mental model because you mentioned for example many many industries fall for this it's not just companies but it's the actual entire industry because they end up setting this kind of paradigm of how that industry works how it operates and which probably as you said once was correct but then the world changes customer preferences changes and they're still serving that customer that has moved on and it becomes dwindling and dwindling over time. But really what you're saying here is that as if it wasn't problematic enough for the company to be stuck in an old mental model or an old paradigm, industries too become stuck in paradigms.
1: A mental model is basically a shared set of assumptions and beliefs about how the world works and what our role in that world is. And actually there's more to it than meets the eye. There are actually more than two levels. There are three levels at which mental models operate. In the book, we talk about primarily organizations, but also industries. Entire industries can have the same mental model, and this often results in a high degree of sameness. And this is why we see that radical innovation often happens at the hands of outsiders who challenge the dominant paradigms in the industry. However, Aidan, there's another important level, which is the individual. That's the third level. As individuals and executives, we all develop recipes for how we get things done. But this is similarly a trap. Continuing to do for too long what has worked for us in the past brings with it the seeds of future failure. Uh, As Marshall Goldsmith says, what got you here
0: won't get you there. I find it so interesting, Narendra, how often serendipity steps in to play when I'm when I'm reading great books like this, uh, wide range of books. And I'll be running the workshop and then somebody will ask a question. And uh, the book I've read exactly addresses that type of thing. So I'm just gonna quote what you talked about next, which is newcomers to a field or newcomers to an industry who are often not welcomed at all. People kind of think, well, what do they know? But you write in this chapter, Newcomers often see blind spots clearly, but when newcomers arrive, organizations usually unleash socialization processes that are designed to integrate these newcomers into our, in inverted commas, our way of doing things around here as rapidly as possible. The faster the newcomer adjusts to the the host organization's way of working, the more we congratulate the newcomer for for being socialized for being successfully recruited or successfully trained in the way things do are done around here she has settled in very nicely for example and you say in fact a valuable opportunity to inject fresh thinking into the organization has been lost and exactly that thing happened one of the people that was in a workshop recently said i I've really struggled because anytime I hire in these brilliant people from outside the industry people kind of go yeah, they're a bit prickly now. They'll they'll make people uncomfortable. And he's like, exactly why I hired them. And that's never welcome inside an organization, but we should welcome that.
1: Yes, absolutely. I I have a lot of sympathy for newcomers that they see things that insiders have stopped seeing. They ask seemingly naive questions, which are often the most powerful ones. And newcomers had this task of striking a delicate balance between earning their credibility and challenging the status quo. But sadly, they rarely get good organizational support in this process. The focus, as you've said, is usually on making the newcomer one of us as quickly as possible. Perhaps we should encourage newcomers to hang on to their newness for as long as possible.
0: So you share on the screen for those people watching us table 3.1 from the book. That provides a framework for undertaking this thinking, the thinking of challenging assumptions that was derived from the work of Saul Prahalad and Gary Hamill, who's a future guest on the show. We're going to do a full series on Gary Hamill for those people who know him in Q4 of this year. Narendra, I'd love you to take us through this because this is a simple questionnaire that we can use to challenge assumptions with inside an organization.
1: Yes. And perhaps I should uh, preface my comments by saying that organizations have a business model as well as a mental model. And most strategy discussion focus on the business model. But if you want creativity and innovation in your strategy, you actually need a new mental model. You need new ways of looking at your assumptions and beliefs. And this is because the old mental model will simply give you variations on the old strategy. Now, if you want to think differently, then this framework is a useful starting point. It's a helpful way of articulating the key elements of the current mental model, challenging them, and developing a different alternative point of view, which could bring with it the seeds of a new and different strategy. So it's a very useful exercise. And as I suggest in the book, it's perhaps best done uh, with a combination of some newcomers who can be, very influential, as we've just been discussing, combined with uh, the expertise of some gray head or hairless industry veterans. I think bringing these two demographics together into this exercise can be a very powerful use of executive time.
0: Let's move to the final element. And I want to say there's case studies in the book. There's a case study, Encyclopedia Britannica. There's a case study that Narendra wrote on Cigna Health. But I, I'm going to leave those for the deep learners, those people who buy the book and go deeper into the book. But I thought about this beautiful quote, one that I love that you talk about in the book. It's by Ari the uh, Goose from this book, The Living Company, which I absolutely love. Unfortunately, he passed away, but I'm going to find some way to cover that book in the future. Perhaps you'll be part of that as well. Nor Android it's an absolutely beautiful read. And this is the idea of continuous learning. And I think... The biggest challenge for people like us who work with executives and executive programs is getting people's time and more than their time, their attention in the program to try and engage, to turn off from the the, the usual, the business as usual and actually engage in the future, challenging the stuff like their mental models, let alone their business models. And Ari DeGoose wrote, The ability to learn faster than your rivals is the only sustainable competitive advantage of the future. You obviously live this every single day. You bring this to your work in Hanley. You bring this to your work with executives all over the world. I'd love you to share your thoughts on this as a final message.
1: Yes, I'd be delighted to. And again, I want to emphasize, when I look at the domain of strategy, everybody focuses on planning. And the fact is that planning by itself is not good enough. As Mike Tyson is rumored to have once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So if planning is not good enough by itself, we also need to learn. And learning is in fact, the process of allowing our previously held assumptions and beliefs to be challenged. Letting go of yesterday's belief is an important part of learning. And this outstanding quote from Ari Arideus that you've cited is a very powerful reminder that organizations need to learn how to plan and also plan how to learn. But since we are on this subject, I've recently rediscovered another quotation which speaks to the same theme and which has resonated deeply with me. This is the futurist and author Alvin Tosley, who said, as far back as in 1978, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but rather those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. I think that's a very powerful message that we should all hold here.
0: Beautiful, man. Mic drop, mic drop moment as well. The last question I have for you is you do extensive amount of work with executives. You're with Henley as well. You've written this beautiful chapter. You also have your own books as well that go way back. So where can people find those books and find out more about you, Narendra?
1: Well, I'm very easy to find, Aiden, and I think that comes from having a unique name. <laughs> uh, LinkedIn is a great starting point. And may I take a moment to say that my colleague Andy Benz and I are launching a strategic innovation program based on the Corporate Explorer at Henley Business School in England this summer. And if you'd like to learn more about this, please do get in touch. We'd be delighted to talk you through
0: what we are thinking. Beautiful. Author of The Corporate Explorer, Narendra Laljani, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to thank our sponsor of the Corporate Explorer series. Wazuku helps large organizations create effective, sustainable innovation ecosystems that accelerate efficiency gains and new value growth. You can find Wazuku at wazuku.com.